This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury. Welcome to Matsplained. Um, we're looking at alternative health on Matsplained today. No, um, not crystals and uh, horse dewormer. The technological advances and breakthroughs uh, that are leading to alternatives and augmentations to conventional medical treatment. Matt, how's your holiday going? Now, you've told me about starting these shows with metaphysical questions. I haven't gone on my holiday yet. I'll be on my holiday when this comes out, but I'm still here now. Or rather, not now, as people are listening to it, but there then when we recorded it. So I hope that's clear. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, all of which is my way of saying, um, sorry if you've heard some of these stories. We recorded this a while ago. Um, no, we are on a, a health tip for uh, Weird Science this week. We're looking at some of the medical and health technology developments that have come out over the past few weeks, which is why I want to start with the Oscars. Is that because some of the outfits made you feel sick? <laughs> it's probably not far from the truth. Um, but there, there is actually a health-related uh, story here. Uh, I just need a little bit of space to unearth it. Uh, sometimes the uh, the Twitterati, or the Muscarati, as I'm going to call them, uh, See, tie themselves, I know, tie themselves up in knots because some scientist is doing a study that sounds frivolous. You know, like people who prefer green M&Ms are more likely to have a learning disorder. Uh, I made that up, by the way. There is no connection between M&Ms and intelligence as far as I'm aware. So, you know, feel free to munch away on those green ones. But you you get what I mean. So I was pulled in by a, a clickbaity headline on New Scientist saying that Oscar-winning actors live longer lives than those who are nominated but don't win. So why do I care was my first thought, but, you know, I'll get to that in a minute. Mm -hmm. It seems that Oscar winners live to an average age of 81.3 years old versus 76.4 years for the actors who are simply nominated but don't win, and only 76.2 years if you were in the same films but you weren't nominated at all. I mean, it would be nice to say that uh, I'm sure there's a point to all of this, but... Um... Yeah, um, I mean, I I did say I need a bit of reversing room for this story. <laughs> so um, the, the research was conducted by uh, Donald Radelmeyer and Sheldon Singh at the University of Toronto. So Radelmeyer was watching the Oscars and he noticed that the older recipients looked healthier and a lot more vigorous than the patients that he was treating. And he wondered why they seem to be healthier than the public at large. Hmm. So they looked at the data set of more than 900 actors who've been nominated for the award since 1929 when it started, and of course the more than 300 recipients. They compared both groups with their co-stars in the same films, the ones who didn't receive a nomination. And, you know, it's actually a lot more complex than it sounds because they had to offset variables like rising life expectancies yeah, since yeah. 1929 so those those health outcomes and of course you have the contributing uh, uh, factor that not all actors lead healthy lifestyles as anyone following the Depp Heard defamation trial will obviously be aware yeah i mean okay but we're still left with that issue of what 
if anything, this actually proves. Well, that 81.3 years for the Oscar winners is actually very similar to the average life expectancies in countries like the US. Mm. So paraphrasing Radelmeyer, what it could be telling us is the importance of behavioral and psychological factors in health. So if you win an Oscar, you're, you know, you're at the top of your profession. It's Mm. not just the accolade, but that perception of status and the offers of work that you get that will help you to generate income. So Mm -hmm. not only can you afford better health treatments or that personal chef or that doctor, but you get all that emotional goodwill from being the person sitting on top of the pyramid. Uh-huh. So similar yeah, so similar studies have shown that Nobel Prize winners live an average 2 years longer than the people who are just nominated for a Nobel Prize. So it seems very unlikely that there are any intellectual or physical attributes that explain those anomalies. So understanding those psychological and behavioral factors can then help us to apply them to society at large. Okay, from uh, I see uh, to I see, contact lenses, smart ones. Um, what are your favourite topics, mate? Yeah, I mean, listeners who are familiar with my many and varied obsessions will probably remember that I have, as you mentioned, a bit of a thing for smart contact lenses. And mm. despite any evidence to the contrary, I do believe that we will all be using and wearing smart lens-based screens. Um, They won't just be display screens. They'll be fully cloud-connected network microcomputers that basically reside in our eyes. And if anyone is asking, why do I believe that? It's really simple. I can't believe that we wouldn't. Mm. Um, Screens and overlays that are baked into Traditional glasses are already possible. We're seeing them coming to the market at the moment. Uh, Connecting them to the cloud would be a way to offload the processing power and power consumption that such tiny devices would require. So I do get pretty excited whenever I see a story that connects me to smart contact lenses. But weren't we supposed to be doing a show today uh, and wasn't it supposed to have a health theme? Well, yeah, but smart contact lenses don't have to mean computing lenses. Um, you know, you'd probably uh-huh. want to see a lot more kind of convergence of functionality in the future in the same way that uh, smartwatches are also expanding the number of health conditions that they can monitor and help identify. You know, we've gone from basic pulse rate monitoring with a lot of these devices to uh, expansions that allow them to detect conditions like heart arrhythmia. Mm. So I think we'll see the same in this kind of sphere of smart lenses. Mm -hmm. Uh, Scientists at the Sunhat Sen University in Guangzhou in China have developed a prototype wireless contact lens, which could be used to monitor the symptoms of glaucoma sufferers. The Mm. lens would monitor the buildup of pressure inside the eye, and when it reaches certain levels, could trigger the release of drugs uh, to help bring those pressure levels down. Uh, You said that it was wireless? Yeah. So according to the New Scientist story that I read, uh, the outer layer of the prototype is made up of six copper plates that are arranged in a ring. These detect any eye deformation uh, that's caused by rising eye pressure. So they can detect Mm. if your eyeball is starting to bulge. Uh, A small antenna in the lens transmits that data to a nearby computer or receiver. That computer can then 
analyze that data and sends a signal back to the lens to say that an intervention is required. And in that instance, the inner layer of the lens, the part that's actually in contact with the surface of your eye, will then release a dose of a pressure-lowering drug that it's impregnated with. Wait, and this is in human trials already? Uh, not yet. Um, and a lot of the other details I, I haven't been able to, to find. Ah. So things like, you know, how is the antenna powered? Is it kinetic? Is there a tiny battery? I mm. just don't know. Um, or things like how long does the lens last? How many doses are impregnated? So there's a lot of information that I wasn't able to find on that. If it makes it into production, there are estimated to be 80 million glaucoma sufferers worldwide. So this is, you know, a condition with a huge number of people that it could help, and it could help them in a much more time-effective manner that could actually avoid things like sight loss and blindness, which are quite common with glaucoma. Mm. And this takes us very neatly to our next story. Yeah, which is you about you having the technology to rebuild yourself. Well, you know, one of the reasons I joke about being a quantum being is because, you know, my own body's pretty much a disappointment. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say <laughs> you I'm... You and me Mr. both, mate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm Mr. Glass and Unbreakable, but there are plenty of bits that I would happily cyborg without a yeah. second thought. Um, and, you know, the, the whole biohacking and organ printing parts of health developments are really interesting if... Mm -hmm slightly scary. So this is the news that researchers at Nankai University in China have created a bionic eye that can dilate the pupil. Now, I know you might be saying, you know, is that it? Um, but that dilation, that pupillary light reflex is what actually allows us to see clearly in all manner of light conditions. But isn't that something we already do with things like, you know, camera technology? Well, that's a great example. You know, there's a lot of software on our phones to help them generate great shots in any light. Uh, I was going to say in any lightning condition, but obviously in any lighting condition. Um, but it's still really easy to overload those sensors. You know, you'll get those overexposed, washed out shots in bright light. And yeah. the, the converse is true. In low light, photos quickly get grainy, uh, especially at those faster exposure rates. Mm -hmm. So to compensate the software on those cameras, increasingly uses uh, artificial intelligence, both on and off the device, which reimagines those missing details. So those seemingly high resolution images are, are kind of an appearance. It's, it's creating what appears to be higher resolution images than the camera sensor is actually capable of reproducing. Mm. But that's not something that we have time to do with our eyes. You know, when we're looking at something, to have functional artificial eyes, you know, not tomorrow, obviously, but at some point in the future, they're going to need to function like real eyes and not rely on things like software. So no cloud-assisted trickery? Well, you know, would you risk your sight on the speed of your broadband or mobile data connection? Oh, I, no. You know, I don't imagine many people <laughs> would. You know, imagine you're driving at twilight or in the dark and you've got bright lights coming at you and then you're plunged back into darkness or whatever your car lights see. Your pupils are going to be going, you know, from wide to pinpricks like a wah-wah pedal. And <laughs> in each of those instances, your brain is turning what your eyes see into those high-resolution images images. So we can't rely on grainy vision from, you know, computer processors when we're making those split second decisions, nor can we take a three second shutter speed to process 
what we're seeing as we drive, mm. which is why this breakthrough in China is, you know, so cool and incredibly important. Uh, the, the idea of eyes sitting around in a, in a lab is, is a little bit disturbing, though. I yeah, I mean, we don't have to think of them as eyes. You know, we can just think of them as sensor arrays. Uh, I, I'm don't think it's as macabre as you're imagining with, you know, lots of like eyes sitting around on desks or staring at people. I'm, I'm not so sure, Matt. You, you, you're a bit of a creepy man, as I mentioned before. I know, you are all my puppets. <laughs> um, the team have uh, developed a material that replicates this dilation process in the artificial eye. It's based mm. on a material called uh, perovskite. Um, and this is known for its properties. It's, it's already used as an artificial synapse. So according to New Scientist, again, when the research team added this incredibly thin material to the artificial eye, it sent these neuron light signals to the eye, which enabled it to control the dilation and the contraction. Mm. And unlike the sensors in your phone, the team reports that it works under all lighting conditions. So I don't think we're going to see an implantable replacement eye anytime soon. Um, you know, the, 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 the medicine dispensing contact lenses weirdly are much easier to perfect but mm. breakthroughs like this at least make it a realistic possibility okay uh for those of you that know the show or for those of you that don't in fact um it's kind of traditional weird science episodes that we let matt do a strange story before the break um as if a self-dilating artificial eye wasn't weird enough uh matt what have you got well, I'm going to break with the health theme for this one. I found this on the great and uh, irreverent IFL Science website. Um, so, you know, if traditional science websites are too dry for you, do try IFLS. Um, I enjoy a, uh, a good pun, and this story is about a tourism campaign for Iceland called Outhorse Your Email. Uh, where you can uh, get an Icelandic horse to write your out-of-office email replies for you. Uh, you see, outsourcing, outsourcing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the campaign follows a survey that Visit Iceland conducted showing that 55% of respondents check their email at least once a day. So set yourself free and let a workhorse take the strain. Just go to outhorse your email, select your horse and your out-of-office date, and the horse will start writing for you. I mean, this might be a very simple question. Can horses type? I, I like basic. Um, you know, <laughs> there, there's a great promotional video that explains how it works. Um, obviously, a horse can't sit down at a laptop and type. That would be stupid. Um, so they've <laughs> built giant outdoor keyboards that the horses can walk on. So that makes perfect sense to me. Um, although, do remember to send your horse some apples once your vacation is over, just to say thank you. Wow. Okay, um, on that note, when we come back, can your phone tell when you're having a mental health crisis? All that and more after the break here on Matt Splained on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Beyond Frivolous Mishmash, BFM 89.9. B 
BFM 89.9, the business station. Welcome back to Matt's Plained. If you're only just joining us, we finished just a few moments ago with uh, typing horses. Uh, anyway, what do we have spinning next on the Wheel of Health, Matt? <laughs> you see, I asked you to say that because it makes it sound like the wheel of death. Um, but anyway, uh, data. Uh, we're increasingly seeing the use of uh, AI as a predictive and uh, analytical tool in medicine. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the most progressive uses has been to increase the data sets that typically skew medical research towards, well, basically me, the white male. Um, but the use of data is not without its own issues and hazards when we're talking about health. As a recent attempt to use AI to improve predictions about uh, patients' mental health in the UK has demonstrated. Uh, in the first phase of an NHS project, over 5 million data points on more than 17,000 patients at an NHS trust were pseudonymized. Uh, what do you mean by pseudonymized? Okay, so a, a couple of weeks ago on the uh, You Are the Product episode, we were talking mm. about some of the inherent flaws in anonymizing data and how easily that anonymized or supposedly anonymized information can be matched back to an individual, especially when it comes to health-related data. Uh, right. Pseudonymized... Um, that basically means that the names were removed when it was sent to the research partner uh, and the names were replaced with a unique identifier so that the health professionals at the trust could action any information relating to specific patients. Uh, the information was shared with a company called Alpha, which is owned by the Spanish telecoms giant Telefonica. Mm -hmm. uh, according to a new scientist, it was used to create AI models that could help to predict if someone was on the verge of a mental health crisis. Uh, they used, uh, I think, 167 variables to predict if a person was likely to experience a crisis within the next four weeks. And the results looked really promising. Uh, they were recently published in the journal Nature Medicine. Uh, the study was conducted in 2020, and it used historical data that was collected between 2011 and 2018 as its basis. And mm -hmm. the AI made 1,011 predictions based on the information it had, which were then passed back to those health professionals. Okay, you say it looked uh, pretty promising, uh, but how accurate were the predictions? Okay, I mean, these are mental health outcomes, so we're not talking, you know, precog level powers. Um, mental states can uh, change pretty rapidly given um, the right circumstances. Uh, they can decline pretty rapidly. So the researchers were really happy with the 58% success rate that they achieved, which is, you know, that's pretty good, however you look at it. Uh, additionally, yeah. the, the doctors and nurses and caseworkers who used the information found it valuable about two-thirds of the time, so about 67%. And a lot of that remaining third was because they were already on top of those cases. So mm. this would seem to suggest that the flow of information to medical teams that's been analyzed by AI is a useful tool for them to use, even if they're already aware of the predictions that it's making. Why did you uh, introduce this as a cautionary tale? 
Well, as I said, this was just the first phase of the survey. Um, as I mentioned at the start, the research partner that the NHS Trust was working with was a, sec uh, was a telco. So the second phase of the trial was to uh, combine patient data with information from their phones. And that's where oh. it all, yeah, that's where it all kind of came unstuck. Telefonica didn't proceed with that second phase because of those concerns about anonymity. Mm -hmm. It's much harder to anonymize because the data is linked to a mobile number. So there's a right. concrete record of who the person is. And yeah. as soon as you have that, um, either there's no backwards anonymity or you have to put such stringent conditions in place that the data itself becomes clinically useless. Mm -hmm. uh, or we simply have to get to a, a point, obviously not at this point in time, where we accept that our medical records and our smartphone identity are inexorably linked. Mm. Um, what do you think then are the wider implications for AI and medical privacy uh, in the future? You know, just just an easy question for you. <laughs> I mean, I think this is something that we should probably, you know, that, uh, devote uh, an episode to in the future because it is really tricky. Mm. Um, data could unlock a huge number of potential treatments. It can assist in monitoring patients. It can mm -hmm. be super useful in terms of preventive outcomes as well, you know, stopping you from getting uh, diseases or conditions in the first place. Mm. But there are still those very real concerns about who sees that data. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, look at that glaucoma treatment in contact lens or the atrial fibrillation and full dissection functions on smartwatches that we talked about earlier. All of that information is hoovered into apps and who is controlling those apps. Mm -hmm. It's especially a concern as we see uh, increasingly that data gathering devices are heavily discounted by some manufacturers in order to make them affordable. But you're not referring to any particular company here, right? No, I mean, I'm conjecturing not making statements of fact here. I mean, we're talking about things that could happen. So historically, mm. um, we haven't been so concerned, although, you know, perhaps wrongly, uh, when we think that our mobile devices are tracking simple things like our shopping habits, mm. because we also forget that the food we eat is a health outcome. If you're mm -hmm. ordering triple fried chicken through an app every day, you might not want that data being shared <laughs> too widely. You know, especially as we see some of the uh, same companies actively looking at uh, both the uh, insurance and health provision industries as areas to expand into, and they're the same companies who are making the devices. Mm -hmm. So we could end up, and I, I stress this as I could, with these massive uh, data-related conflicts of interest. Is there a limit to how far anonymized medical data can take us? I mean, I, I think that's, again, an enormous part of this question. As we move away from this idea of historical data analysis to real-time monitoring, that mm. anonymized or pseudonymized component becomes much more of an impediment. That's why I, I said I think it should be a topic that we look at in more detail. Uh, because it could change the way we define that monitoring aspect of health monitoring. And we have to start thinking more carefully about who we give that power to. Anyway, enough of that, because uh, as Richard has probably edited out, it took me 20 attempts to say that last sentence. So let me ask you a question. Uh, Richard, are you yes. feeling sleepy? Um no, I'm always wide awake, Matt, when we're talking about data sets. You know that. You know, it's one of my favorite <laughs> topics. Uh, but what have you got next? 
I, it's just a good job I've got a waveform on the screen in front of me that actually shows you're still alive. Um, no, um, uh, climate change. So climate change and sleep. Um, so there have been reports of people losing sleep because of climate-induced anxiety. We're not mm. going to talk about that. Because uh, it makes me anxious when we do. Yeah, exactly. So researchers at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark have been studying the effects of climate change on our sleep patterns. Startlingly, they've discovered that on average, people are losing up to 44 hours of sleep per year as a result of these changes to weather patterns. Wow. They took, yeah, it, it's quite considerable. So they took data from sleep tracking wristbands from over 48,000 people spread across 68 countries uh, and in multiple income groups um, between the years 2015 and 2017. They then matched the sleep data back to local weather information, uh, you know, so they could see um, if it suggested when temperatures were unusually uh, hot and what the correlations mm -hmm. were. So what they would see is that people would sleep later and wake up earlier. Mm. And they estimate that if temperatures continue to increase, that by the year 2100, uh, when I'll be oh, at least 23, um, we <laughs> could be losing an average of uh, 58 hours of sleep per year. Uh, might be a simple question, but wouldn't people compensate during cooler periods of the year? I mean, that might be what you expect to see, but the evidence from the study suggests that we aren't adapting to these temperature changes in that way. We don't or we can't take naps during the day to make up for that lost sleep. And mm. those disrupted sleeping patterns from the warmer periods may be carried over into other periods of the year as well. And of course, with those uh, uh, that lack of sleep, come the physical and mental effect on well-being as well. Right, um, right. You know, people know to keep a wide distance from me when I'm feeling too hot because, you know, I am an angry bear. Um, mm -hmm. So there are those well-documented impacts on mood and behavior and cognitive function, not to mention the negative effects on physical health that heat can have, you know, the heat strokes, the strokes, the heart problems. Mm. And of course, these changes are disproportionately felt by people in lower income groups, people who are likely to have less control over the hours they work, as well as having the money that it takes to mitigate higher temperatures uh, with measures such as installing air conditioners or other cooling systems in their homes. See, at this point, Matt, I am really genuinely surprised that you don't already live in an igloo. I mean, people joke about this, but I have raised the possibility of living in Finland or Iceland with my wife. So far, it's mm. been a, a definite no. Um, she claims that her brain functions better in warmer conditions, whereas mine definitely fires more clearly when it's cold. Um, I don't really know how you find a happy medium for something like that, which is why I'm hoping that the uh, holiday that I'm enjoying while you're listening to this, but that I haven't started while that I'm recording this, is going to be cold. Confused? I am. Yeah, a little bit, yes. Uh, thanks again for that, Matt. Enjoy the rest of your non-holiday holiday. Are you on holiday? You don't know. I'm, I'm as confused as you are. I will, anyway. and I am. Good, I think. Uh, you can find Matt on Instagram, wherever he is, and Twitter, at Culture Matt, or subscribe to the Culture Pop newsletter on Substack for more information about these shows. And as usual, if you did miss any part of the show, head over to the BFM website, download the show there, or download the BFM app. It's available in the Apple App Store or Google Play. My name is Rich Bradbury. This has been Matt Splained on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.